My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Good morning, this is Pastor Lane Jones from the Beacon of Hope broadcast, pastor of Calkins Baptist Church. And for many months now, we've been following Jesus through his life and ministry. We've watched Christ all the way from his visit to the temple at age 12, through the roughly three years of his miraculous public ministry, through his betrayal by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane, throughout his crucifixion. Today we come to the, our fourth and final study on Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. And we're going to conclude this study of the life of Christ at this point. I, I think I'm going to go to the book of Romans starting next week. I think it would be a very important study, as that book, more than any other book in the Bible, gives the basic doctrines of the faith, and I think it'll be a blessing to you. So I hope if you get a chance to um, listen to our study next week, I'd love to have you join us as we start the book of Romans, Lord willing. But um, also, I just want to mention, if you haven't had a chance to listen to these different messages that Jesus actually preached, now I'm taking them out of the New Testament, then trying to describe what he's saying and what he means by what he's saying, you're more than welcome to access our podcast. It's at radiobold.com slash Calkins Baptist, and we have every one, I believe it was like 44 different messages that I found in the New Testament that Jesus preached. I found that a very interesting study. And then for the last 71 messages of this series, we've been following Christ around, not so much as watching him preach, but watching what he does, how he handles different situations. And so as we've been looking through the New Testament, I found 12 different uh, incidents where Jesus appeared to one or more of his followers after his resurrection. Let me list them for you briefly. First one was his appearance to Mary Magdalene, then the appearance to the other ladies who visited the tomb on that first resurrection morning, then the third one was Jesus' appearance to the apostle Peter. Just mentioned, not much said about that in the New Testament. Number four was Jesus' long conversation with two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. Now, these are not part of the 12 disciples, but they were followers of Jesus, and quite an interesting conversation there. Then you have Jesus appearing to 10 of his 11 loyal disciples, Thomas being absent, and that also happened the first day of his resurrection. That would be in the evening. The number six would be when all 11 apostles, Thomas also being with them, were present eight days after his first appearance uh, number seven would be to seven of his disciples on the Sea of Galilee that would be found in John chapter 21, verses 1 to 23. The eighth appearance was to over 500 at once We in Galilee. That would be Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Number nine, where we left off last week, was James, the half-brother of Christ. And again, very little is mentioned about this, just that it happened. That would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse 7. Now, I'd like to focus in on two other appearances the one is to uh, Jesus' last appearance to his, uh, to his disciples at his ascension, and then his different revelations to the Apostle Paul. That'd be number 11. There was a 12th appearance after Christ's resurrection. It was to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, but I dealt with that in our series on the messages of Christ because Jesus gave a long uh, dissertation on some of the churches in that day, and so I will not go back there. So we're going to focus in on, first of all, Christ's appearance to his disciples at his ascension back to heaven, and then his later appearance to the Apostle Paul, both to save him and then, secondly, to help him to learn what to teach throughout the world. 
So before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity of being here. Help me to be clear, to be understandable, to be helpful to these folks who will take the time and make the effort to listen. So we pray that you might bless them for it and bless uh, me that I might be able to speak your words in truth and, and sincerity in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this, we're in Acts chapter 1 and verses 1 to 11, and this is the dealing with the, the appearance of Christ just before he ascended back to heaven. And I'm going to start right at verse 1. It says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, who Luke is writing here uh, to is a man by the name of Theophilus. Now, he's also mentioned in the beginning of Luke's other book, which is the Gospel of Luke, and right in the beginning of it as well, the first four verses. When you put these passages together, it seems that this man named Theophilus was a person who had been taught the truths of the gospel and about Jesus Christ, but he personally had not seen any of the events. He'd be like us. You know, he didn't wasn't there at the resurrection, wasn't there during Jesus' public ministry. Possibly, maybe his parents were believer or so, believers or some other Christian had witnessed to him. He may have been a, a believer himself, but it seems that he had some doubts that maybe things weren't all true. And so this really was one of the motivations for Luke writing his Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts, as Luke hoped to address those doubts in his two books. Now, the larger audience that this is meant for is you and I. And so God intended both Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts to go to us all, so you and I are part of this. The place that uh, Luke picks up his second book, the book of Acts, is he talks about, okay, I, I wrote to you earlier, that's what he was talking about in the first couple of verses I read, about all that Jesus began to do and teach up until the day in which he was taken back to heaven. And so Luke is like a good teacher, kind of going to go right back to the end of where he was teaching, maybe give a couple other details, and then move on into what he wanted to cover, and that would be the history of the church. Now, he mentions... In, again, the opening of his book, that Jesus' appearances were convincing evidence of his bodily resurrection. He's, again, trying to challenge Theophilus with this. The fact is that he mentions them being as infallible, being the idea that they would be clear or convincing to anyone who was of fair mind. And one of the things he mentions how that Jesus was appearing to different people over a 40-day period. So it's not like, you know, just a few people sitting around and, oh, we have this hallucination and we think that... Uh, well, maybe we th saw something there, an apparition or something. No, these events happened over a 40-day period. And not only that, but Jesus did some specific teaching during that. So listen to the, the next verse. In verse 3 again, it says, "...to whom he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God." So Jesus was teaching his disciples even during this time, and the, the thing that he specifically was talking about was the kingdom of God. That is very important when you keep moving forward. So now we come to Jesus' final appearance to his disciples before his ascension. So I'm starting at verse 4 now of Acts 1. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, 
but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the command of Jesus is to wait for the Holy Spirit's coming. They would need to stay in, Jer- in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came. Now, some of you may say, well, what's the big deal about staying in Jerusalem? Couldn't the Holy Spirit come elsewhere and, and fall upon the disciples? Well, yes, that's obviously true. But Jesus wanted his followers to be in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came. And we do know some of the reasons, at least. Well, there was a special feast day coming in just a few days after Jesus ascended to heaven, and that was the feast called Pentecost. Now, at that feast, Jews from all over the world would gather uh, for this time of celebration. And thus, when the Holy Spirit came on that day, then the impact was just tremendous because what it meant is that multitudes of people from all over the world were converted and understood that Jesus was the Savior, and then they could go back to their homelands with the gospel. It like exploded Christianity right from the start. And so it seems that was the Lord's reason, or at least one of the reasons why he said, stay in Jerusalem until you've been endued with this power from on high, endued with the Holy Spirit's power. Now, at that point, the disciples have an important question. It's found in the next verse, verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this question is, what about the kingdom, Lord? We've been looking for you to be Messiah, to to rule and reign over Israel. When is that going to happen? Now, notice that Jesus, the master teacher, had been teaching his followers since his resurrection even, still about the kingdom of God. And the disciples were looking still for a literal kingdom under the nation of Israel. Now, there are many good and, and you know godly Bible scholars who do not believe a literal kingdom of God is coming. They think it's more of an internal thing. But I think this passage clearly teaches that a literal kingdom of God is coming and will be centered in the nation of Israel, just as it was prophesied in the Old Testament. Now, why do I say that? Well, imagine you have a great history teacher, uh, and he's teaching U.S. history for three years. At the end of doing some extra teaching, maybe boning him up for a test on the U.S. history, specifically during the founding era, he's entertaining questions, and several of his students raised their hand to ask the same question. Mr. Smith, who was the first president of the United States? Now, while he says that, maybe some people begin to um, laugh a little bit, but one student uh, speaks up and he says, well, he says it was Thomas Jefferson who was the was the first president of the United States, and he was made president under the Articles of Confederation. Well, I would submit to you uh, that that teacher would have been a little bit upset that his students didn't know something more than they did. He he would have been pretty upset that one of the basic questions of the first president that people didn't know was George Washington, and it's our Constitution that we're under, not the Articles of Confederation. That uh, went out back in, in when the Constitution was ratified. So uh, a fundamental question like that. Matter of fact, you, if you and I were sitting in that, in that classroom, we'd be saying, well, what kind of a teacher is this if the kids don't even know who the first president of the United States was? Matter of fact, um, it's rather interesting that uh, the story is told about a, a kid who was in elementary school and he got called in to, by the principal. and The parents are called in as well because he's not been studying very well. 
And so the the uh, principal looks at the dad and he says, he says, you know, he says, Dad, you know, your son, he doesn't even know the major signature on the Declaration of Independence. He doesn't even know who was the signer of the Declaration of Independence. And the father sat there for a moment. He said, come over here, son. He said, now I want you to be honest with me. He said, uh, if you signed that thing, admit it now and let's get out of here. Well, you know, there's a lot of people that may not know history that well, but if you're a master teacher, you would expect your students to have a basic question. Why I say that is this. If Jesus has been just talking about the kingdom of God and the disciples still haven't figured out that the kingdom of God is just in your mind, then something is wrong with Jesus' teaching. And I would just tell you, there's nothing wrong with our Lord's teaching. He's a master teacher. They're looking for a literal kingdom because that is something that our Lord was telling them was still coming. And I'll tell you something else, and that is that that he does not rebuke them and say, oh, you guys got this wrong, which you would have expected. Jesus instead gives them some vital truths about the future. And this is really, really important for you and I even today, because they're asking a question about the end times. You know, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And listen to what Jesus' answer is. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So what Jesus is saying here is it's not for you to know some things about the future. And boy, if we could only keep these things, these two things in mind, it'd be extremely helpful for all of us, especially those of you that believe the scriptures and want to try to follow. The first thing he's saying is, it's not for you to know the times. That means the length of time before the kingdom comes. The word times there in the Greek language in which the New Testament was originally written is the word chronos, and it had, where we get the word chronology. And so the idea that Jesus is giving them is it's not for you to know how long until I come. Now, he also said it's not for you to know the seasons. And the word season here, as it is used in, in, this, uh, in, the, in the New Testament, is very similar to how we would speak of the seasons of the year. So what is spring like? Well, it's a time of new growth, of, of wildly raging temperatures. What's our summer like? Well, it's a time of warmer weather. It's a time of beautiful uh, green foliage all around. It's a time of plant growth. Well, what's the fall like? Well, it's a time of cooling temperatures, less color. Leaves are very colorful at that point, excuse me. And it's a time of harvest. And what's the winter like? Well, it's cold. We think of Christmas maybe, snow, a hibernation for some of the animals and the trees. Well, what Jesus is saying, then let's put it together, it's not for you to know how long until I come or until uh, the end time events are going to be taking place. It's also not for you to know what it's going to be like before I come, whether it's a nice warm summertime, whether it's the spring, or think of it this way, what it's like in the world, how, how, uh, whether the world is accepting to the Lord or rejecting to the Lord. Jesus said it's not for you to know the season. So let's not miss two vital things in Jesus' words here. First of all, he is saying it's not for you to know this. So when someone comes along and says, well, I know when Christ is coming back, quite honestly, they're claiming to know something that Jesus told his own apostles, who, by the way, will write the New Testament. He tells them it's not for you to know this. 
So how do we know it? How, how does Joe Blow, some preacher somewhere or somebody else who's done all kinds of mathematical equations with the Bible, that you, 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 throw it out? Because Jesus told us it's not for us to know how long God's plan for the future is, is going to be before it comes to pass or what it's going to be like before the next step in God's plan for the future takes place. So remember, Jesus is not only who, what he's saying, but who he's telling this to. He's telling this to the apostles. So the person who presumes to give you a timetable or even a sign of Christ's return is assuming to know more than the apostles of Christ, or to put it another way, an author of the Bible. So keep this in mind that Jesus is not is 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 telling us don't get taken in by all these people who are trying to give you times and dates and well this is a sign of his coming. No, the reality is it's not for us to know. Then well what are we to do? Well that's the next verse. That's verse eight, where Jesus says this. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So what Jesus is saying here is that don't focus on trying to figure out the future. That's not for you to do. He's saying instead, focus on this command that I've given you, and that is to take the gospel to be a witness of Christ throughout the world. And he mentions four different areas for his disciples to to focus on. First one he mentions is Jerusalem, which was their current location. That's where they were. Also, the place, the uh, foundation of the Jewish government, because they're 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 a Jewish man. They're they're Israeli citizens. They they're part of that country. It's also the center of of their power. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to take the gospel to the place you're at. Uh, don't be afraid of your government, the seats of power. Take the gospel there. Then he mentions Judea. Now, Judea is sort of like, if you could think of, like, Honesdale being Jerusalem, and Judea would be like Wayne County. So it's it's the region in that area. It's a large, larger uh, scope. So it's a broader locality. And by the way, many in that area were hostile to Jesus. There were many also that loved him, but but there were many, it was a mixed bag. And so... Take the gospel even to the broader community. Then he said Samaria. Now, what's interesting about Samaria is that there's a racial difference there. There's definitely hostilities, centuries of hostilities that have gone back and forth between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And yet, there were some Samaritan villages that were somewhat open to Christ. If you remember in John chapter 4, Jesus led a woman to himself. We call her the woman at the well. And he witnessed to her at, at the well she was converted, and she goes back into her town of Sychar, which is in Samaria. And Jesus had a very fruitful two or three days there uh, explaining uh, what the, about himself and about um, the, the truth of the gospel, and many, many people got saved. So a wonderful thing. So Samaria is maybe a, a tougher a place you're not as comfortable with, but Jesus said, I want you to take the gospel even to those people. Then the ends of the earth. Now, this would be all types of people with all different reactions. And by the way, as the disciples of Jesus, the men who were actually standing there, as they obeyed Jesus' command, that's why many of them died as martyrs, because they went across the world, quite literally, with the gospel. 
and tried to t- explain to people that they needed Christ as their Lord and Savior, and some people believed and were converted, and their lives were changed, and their families were changed, and other people got extremely angry, as still we have the same reactions many times today. And and so they were, the, the apostles, almost all of them, were killed for their faith one place or another because of standing up and telling people about Christ, whether the crowd wanted to hear or whether they were rebellious. Now, so we we're seeing here that Christ's final appearance to his disciples at his resurrection, uh, after his resurrection, at his ascension. And we, we saw the command to wait for the Holy Spirit's coming. We saw that important question, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And our Lord is, isn't saying that, um, oh, you guys are nuts, that's not going to happen. What he is saying is it's not for you to know when or even what it's going to be like before that happens. You just focus on being witness for me. And then there's a promise that these men are left with. It's found then in the the last three verses I'd like to read out of this passage. It says in verse 9 of of Acts 1, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And so there's this wonderful promise that he that Christ is going to return in a similar manner in which they had just seen him leave. And so they can go back and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit with that promise ringing in their ears. Okay, don't focus so much about the future. Focus in on being a witness for Christ across the world. And they did that very thing. Now that brings us then to the appearances of Christ to the Apostle Paul. Now it's mentioned in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 8 where Paul says, last of all, the Lord appeared to him as one born out of due season. And so what we'd like to do is break down Christ's appearances to Paul to two major categories. The first one is Christ's appearance to Paul to save him from his pride and self-righteousness. Now before his conversion, the Apostle Paul's name was Saul. He was Saul from the uh, city of Tarsus, so many people would call him Saul of Tarsus. And I'm not sure that he totally rejected that name after his conversion. It doesn't seem he did. But at least among the Gentiles, they be, they came to know him as Paul. And so you may hear me use the words interchangeably. They were talking about the same guy, a guy we call the Apostle Paul. But before his conversion, he was called Saul. Now, I want you to notice, as Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, if you want to turn there, record Jesus' appearance to Saul of Tarsus while he's on the road to Damascus. So what's happening is Saul was an enemy of the gospel before his conversion. Matter of fact, he would later write in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. So how Paul describes himself before his conversion, he said, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, so I'd go after Christians, I I tried to stop them and arrest them, you'll see that in a few moments, an insolent man, just proud, stubborn, hard to get along with. 
But he says, I obtained mercy. I did it in unbelief. I really thought I was doing right. Isn't that interesting? So what what changed him around? Well, he had been involved in putting Christians to death, actually. In Acts chapter 22 and verse 4, here's what Paul would say about himself. He said, I persecuted this way, and this way is like talking about the Christians. That was an early name for them. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. So he's a man that that doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. Man, if you're identifying with Jesus of Nazareth and you're trying to say he was the Messiah, he looked at you as a blasphemer, and he would do everything in his power to shut you up. And he would he would actually try to force you into blaspheming Jesus. He would arrest you, and if possible, and the circumstances were right, he would even vote for your execution. An example of that would be actually what happened in the chapter uh, previous if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. Uh, chapter, excuse me, two chapters previous, chapter 7, when there was a man by the name of Stephen, one of the early Christians. He was a deacon in the church at Jerusalem. And he was up preaching and talking to people about Christ. And again, some people are listening and, and finding faith in the Lord, and other people are getting extremely angry. And as a result, there's a crowd of, of the enemies of Christ that began to form around him. They arrest Stephen. They take him in front of a trial. And when Stephen preaches and really comes straight up with these religious leaders, remember something, this is shortly after Jesus had been crucified and risen from the dead. So this is still fresh in a lot of these people's minds. And, and Stephen is addressing some of the very people who were involved in Jesus' crucifixion and getting him crucified. And here's that kind of the conclusion of his message. He says, you stiff-necked. I mean, by the way, if you're following, it's Acts chapter 7. I'm going to read verse 51 to 53. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold of the, the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by direction of angels and have not kept it. So, whoo, Stephen was not afraid to stand up and tell these religious leaders the truth, and that is you're really a descendant of a long line of rebels against God, and you persecuted, your forefathers persecuted the prophets who foretold of the coming of Christ, and now you're the guys who were in power when you rejected Christ, and you haven't kept the law, you haven't, you've been a hypocrite, man, he just really went after them. Well, the reaction, you can imagine, was not positive. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. You can get the scene of the teeth just flashing as these people are so angry at what Stephen said, because he's basically said, you're hypocrites and you murdered the, the savior of the world, which they had. And you're, you're, law, you're not law keepers, you're, you're disobedient, you just went after them. And that is when they dragged him out of the city and stoned him to death. And what's interesting, I'm reading now, 
verse 57 down to the end of the chapter, which is verse 60 of Acts chapter 7, it says, Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Yep, that's Saul of Tarsus. That's later the Apostle Paul. Now, why are they laying their coats down at Saul's feet? Because he basically had uh, told them, I will, I will guard them so you can kill Stephen. That's exactly what he was doing. He's part of this. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not lay this sin, uh, excuse me, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, can you imagine Saul of Tarsus being there and saying, hey, I'll, you, you throw your coats right down here. I'll guard them. You go ahead and stone Stephen. Being part of this, and then listening to that man, Stephen, as he's dying, saying, Lord, don't lay this sin to their charge. How many of us would do that? This guy was really showing a genuine spirit of Christ. And I just have to wonder if that didn't gnaw at Saul's conscience. But chapter 8 tells us the next verse, now Saul was consenting to his death. He was... He was convinced that guy was a nutcase, whatever, whatever he was trying to ask that God would not hold that against his charges. Like, we did the right thing. Stephen was a nutcase. He should have been killed. And going on in, in verse 1 of chapter 8, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So I don't know if you've heard this or not, but it's the truth. It's right in the scriptures that the Apostle Paul, before his conversion, had been involved in putting Christians to death. And he agreed with those who put Stephen to death, and he guarded the coats of those who put Stephen to death. And when you come to chapter 9, the chapter where Jesus appears to Saul, it says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, that's again how they were calling Christians back then, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's making plans. Saul is like the lead inquis inquisitor, like the lead persecutor of Christians now. And he's probably pretty young, very zealous, very proud, very insolent. And so he's just went to the high priest himself, the highest religious leader in the nation of Israel, and got him to agree to let him, let Saul go, and all the way to Damascus, Syria, go to the synagogues. He doesn't care about the people who are non-Jewish, but those who are in those synagogues, they better not be teaching that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and that he rose from the dead. And if they, if they do that, he got permission to 
to find they, these people, to bind them, to arrest them, and to transport them to Jerusalem for trial. And according to chapter 9 and verse 2, which I read, Saul had the authority to arrest both men and women. He didn't care. If you were sharing about Jesus of Nazareth, he wanted you to shut up. He wanted you to be stopped. And so he was willing to arrest you, and he was even willing to to put Christians to death if, if, if necessary. Well, it's in that context, as he's headed up to Damascus, that we come to verse 3 of Acts 9. It says, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, so he's almost where he wants to go, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Let's stop there for just a second. So he's near the city of Damascus. Jesus is appearing to him in a great light that drove him to the ground. By the way, he's not the only one that fell to the ground. People around him did as well, but he'll later testify that they heard a voice, but they didn't. They couldn't understand it. Like they didn't. He was Jesus was speaking to, to Saul of Tarsus. That's who he was speaking to. The other ones really did not know what he said. So Jesus then asks him a penetrating question: Why are you persecuting me? Now Saul doesn't know who he's talking to at this point. That's why he says, "Who are you, Lord?" He honestly doesn't know. I'll keep reading. I'm in verse 5. Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, if you're not familiar with goads, think of people that would um, use oxen, okay, in a, in, a, in a yoke, like two of them together, and they're going to drive them to plow a field. Well, an ox is a pretty strong animal, and so one of the things that they would do to goad the oxen on, okay, maybe you've heard of that term, to get them moving, is they would have a long, and it better be long because they've got, you know, they're a powerful animal. It's a long stick with a sharp end on it that you would poke into their hind quarters, maybe their, their legs or, or up near their rump. And the idea was that pain then would get them moving. Now, if you're at one of those oxen, and you felt that pain, and you kicked at that pain, you'd actually make it worse because you're driving that thing into your flesh. And so Jesus is using that analogy with Saul of Tarsus. He's saying, you're having a hard time kicking against me. The harder you kick, the worse it gets. And the reality was, when Saul was out persecuting Christians, he, he did not intend to do this, but he scattered them to preach the gospel in places that they weren't going to go yet because they had to get out of his way. And as they did, the Bible says that they went everywhere teaching about Christ. So he actually furthered the gospel even in his in his unbelief and his, his proud rebellion against anything to do with this idea that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah and that he'd risen from the dead. So can you imagine the shock this man is, is feeling as... The, he's been knocked down by this bright light from heaven and this voice that says, I am Jesus, and you're persecuting me. Now, verse 6, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? You'll notice Saul is astonished, but he's also submissive. 
He he doesn't say, well, you're not any. He oh, that's done. He's been knocked down. He knows he's dealing with something far more powerful than him. And let's remind ourselves, he told us um, in a verse we read a few minutes ago that I did this ignorantly in unbelief. I thought I was right. And so now what's coming crystal clear in this man's life is, oop, I was wrong. This one is talking to me right now is Jesus of Nazareth, and obviously he's alive. So that just knocked his whole worldview out, out of the park. He trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. So Jesus told Saul to go into the city of Damascus, and he would be told what to do next. Now, why not give Paul Saul more instructions at this point? Well, to be honest with you, Paul, Paul will later while giving a testimony, give us some more information about what Jesus said at that point, because Jesus did say a little bit more than is recorded in Acts chapter 9. That doesn't, it's not a problem at all. When you're retelling a story, you don't always tell every detail um, every time you tell the story. So here's how Paul gives a little bit more that Jesus says to him later in an account before a man by the name of King Agrippa. He said, so I said, I'm in Acts, by the way, if you're following Acts 26, I'm in verse 15, I'll read down to verse 18. So, so I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you, which means this, Jesus is going to appear to, to Saul more than once, or the apostle Paul, and he will. He's going to show up more stuff later on. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes to, in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And Saul, Paul goes on while telling his testimony, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So the Lord tells him, Go into Damascus, but he gives them some more information and some really some great promises. And that is, um, I'm, I'm going to use you. You're going to be a great witness for me. You're going to go to the Gentiles. The funny thing about that is this man is a proud Pharisee. He thinks he's better than the Gentiles. And Jesus is saying to him, I'm going to send you to them. And you know what, Saul, now that he knows that he was wrong, he's going to be good with that. He's going to let the Lord send him wherever he wants to because he he realizes Jesus really is the resurrected Christ. I've been wrong, and I need to I need to change. Now, something else you need to know that happens at this point. I'm back in Acts chapter nine. I'm going to read verse seven and eight. It says the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. So they heard sounds. They uh, another passage indicates that they didn't understand the words, but they did hear something going on but they didn't see Jesus. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So now we see that Saul's been blinded by this bright light when Christ revealed himself to him. And when I read the next verse, verse 9, listen to this, as, and he was there three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. 
So now, when he goes into Damascus, I, I if I was me, I'd be hoping I can't see right now. I hope somebody's going to talk to me, explain to me more, more what I'm supposed to do. I, I'm now believing that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, he's just appeared to me. What do I do now? And can you imagine also the remorse this man must have felt as he considers, what have I done? I have been putting to death even, commanding people to blaspheme the name of Jesus, and they were right. And I have been making a name for myself in my pride, persecuting all these Christian people, and I was wrong. Jesus is alive. Can you imagine? So for three days, what's he doing? Acts chapter 9, verse 9, he neither he was without sight, he neither ate nor drank. So he's still blind. He's fasting, and according to Acts chapter 9 and later down the line, Ananias, a man who's in the city of Damascus, is told to go talk to him. Ananias is a believer. And God says, I want you to go talk to Saul of Tarsus. He is praying. That interesting? So during those three days, uh, again, I just can't imagine how he must have, the guilt he must have experienced trying to work through that. What have I done? And thinking about the faces, maybe some names of people, men and women that he imprisoned, people that he actually voted for to be put to death, including Stephen, maybe some others. Thinking about what he had done and how he had been in rebellion against, against the God he was claiming to serve. And he was so blinded. And so for three days, the Lord doesn't send him anyone. He just lets him fast and pray, lets, leaves him blind, lets him, lets him think it through what he's done. But you know, there's great hope here. Some of you may have come to the place where you thought, you know, I have sinned so greatly against God. He could never forgive me. Maybe I've done uh, committed adultery or I've, I've embezzled or I've done some terrible things. Maybe you've even been involved in, in uh, putting someone to death. You've done horrific things. And you say, God, I don't think he could ever forgive me. Well, look at the Apostle Paul. Matter of fact, he will say in one of his Gospels, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the worst. And he, he said, I, I feel like Jesus saved me so that anyone can realize that, yes, I could be forgiven. So there he is. He's fasting. He's praying. But he's got to be thinking about a lot of the things he's done. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus. Let's go ahead and read it about this Ananias fellow. He's named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. By the way, there's still the street called Straight in the city of Syria, of Damascus, Syria, to this day. You could actually go there. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he is, authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So the, the Christians in Syria, Damascus, Syria, had already heard that Saul was coming. And so Ananias is like, Lord, are you sure you want me to go? 
This guy's trying to arrest Christians. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Hanias went his way and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, that amazing, he's calling him his brother because Saul, yes, has been converted now. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now, can you imagine Saul now, who's gone up to Damascus, Syria, to arrest Christians, now becomes one. And I, I wonder what happened with the other people, that were, the soldiers that were coming up with them to arrest the Christians. I mean, what do they think? Now, they didn't see Jesus. They saw a bright light. They knew the effect it had on Saul. They knew that it blinded him. They heard there was some kind of speaking going on, but they didn't they didn't hear it directly. So it really wasn't to them, but you gotta wonder, did any of them see the dramatic change in Saul of Tarsus and realize, you know, we need to we need to come to Christ. There's something to this, or did they continue to harden their hearts? We really don't know. What we do know is that Christ will appear to Saul, now we'll call him the Apostle Paul, later on after his conversion, in order to teach him truths that he was to share with the world. And where we get that from is Galatians chapter 1. Now, I'm flipping to Galatians chapter 1. If you're trying to follow in your Bible, it's toward the back of your Bible from the book of Acts, a couple books. And Galatians is written uh, to this area of Galatia, and these are the, there's a number of churches out there, but they've fallen into a heresy where they think that they've got to not only accept Christ, but they've got to keep the law or they won't be saved, which is, which is not true. And so the Apostle Paul is trying to explain to them that these people that have gone through and told you that you need to keep the law in order to be saved are false prophets. And so how does he explain this to them? Well, I'm going to start here at verse 6 of Galatians chapter 1. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So what he's saying is you've gone to a different gospel, but it's not on the same level. Okay, it's not really a true gospel at all. So you're not going to get to heaven by this, Okay. They're, they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now he goes on. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. So he's saying whatever authority you want to throw at, at this issue, whether you say, well, well, the apostle Paul said this. He said, if you say it's me or some other apostle, or you want to say an angel spoke. He said, whatever it is, he said, if you turn away, if, if whatever you're calling as your authority is turning you away from salvation by repentance and faith, if anyone turns you away from that, he says, let that person be accursed. They're, they're, they're a heretic. They're, they're wrong. Verse 9, he says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone 
preaches any other gospel to you than what you receive, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. Paul's saying, I'm not doing it. I'm not serving God, trying to take the gospel of the world as God, as Christ told us to. I'm not doing that because of trying to be popular. If I was, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Goes on. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus appeared to him when he first saved him? He said, I'm going to show you more things. Well, this now the Apostle Paul is giving us a little insight on that. Let's keep reading. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, what, why does he go to Arabia? That seems to be where Jesus appeared to him and actually taught him the truths that he would share with the world. And so we've come to the final appearance of Christ. That was to the Apostle Paul. We had a couple of different ones, first at his conversion, and then secondly, to teach him truths that he was to share with the world. Now, what do we conclude from this? Well, from Jesus' final appearance before his ascension when he was with the, with the disciples, we learn that you are not to know when Jesus will return or what it will be like before his coming. So doesn't mean you can't um, think and pray about prophecy, and we should pray for our Lord's return. But we are to focus mainly on being a witness for Christ in easy places and hard throughout the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll just say this. I have met many people who are far more interested in trying to figure out when the Lord's going to return, which he said you're not going to be able to do, than they are in trying to witness to their friends and neighbors. And yes, I think we ought to be very interested in our Lord's return, be praying about it, but the main thing we ought to be focused on is getting out the witness of Christ to, to the lost who aren't ready for his return. We also learn from his appearance to his disciples just before his ascension that we are told that Christ will return just as those disciples saw him go. And that's encouraging. He is coming back. He is going to return. Now, what about his appearances to the Apostle Paul? Well, from them we learn that people can be sincerely wrong about Jesus. I mean, Saul of Tarsus was sincerely wrong. He was, he was putting people to death and convinced he was right in doing it. We also see that pride often stands in the way of coming to the truth. He says, I was an insolent man. I was a proud, hard-hearted, uh, uh, stubborn. That'll often hinder someone from coming to the truth, their pride. We also see that Paul met Jesus on that road to Damascus, and his life was forever changed. He went from the Christian's greatest enemy to Jesus' greatest defender. And it was a change just instantaneous once he saw who the true Christ was. Once he realized that, that he was wrong about Jesus, he flipped and completely threw his whole heart and soul into serving the Lord. 
We also learn from this appearance that Christ's appearance to Paul and his changed life are one of the great witnesses to Christ's bodily resurrection. I mean, how do you explain this? This guy was a Pharisee, a very prejudiced, proud man, and completely flips where he will spend the the majority of his of his ministry speaking to Gentile people, telling them how Christ has made them equal, equal brothers and sisters with, with their Jewish brethren. It's amazing. This guy completely turned. How can you explain that? He's not crazy. He writes half of the New Testament, and those books are, are well-written, logical, have some of the greatest moral truths that have ever been written, obviously come from God. It's really hard to explain the, the conversion of the Apostle Paul uh, outside of the fact that he really did see Jesus of Nazareth risen from the dead. Now, thirdly, we learn, uh, I want to say to you, think that Jesus' bodily resurrection proves his identity as the promised Savior. And if you wish to avoid God's judgment for your sin and spend eternity in heaven instead of eternity in hell, which we deserve, you must repent of your sin, come to Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I'll just leave you with two verses, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 2 and verse 12 says, kiss the son. Isn't it interesting? This is written a thousand years before Jesus. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Come to the son of God. He proved himself at the resurrection. Then the second scripture is something that the apostle Peter said before the uh, leaders who put Jesus to death. A few uh, days after Christ's resurrection, he says to them, neither is there salvation in any other. So don't think that you can get to saved by some other means, some other uh, faith. He said, neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the only way to heaven. So in closing, we ask you, do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? If not, I pray that today you will put your faith in him. And then are you obeying his command to take the gospel to the world? It's what he wants us to focus on. Because the bottom line is Jesus has risen and he's given us a job to do. May the Lord richly bless you. If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at radiobold.com slash Baptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Everlasting life and light, he frees.